Hello everyone, welcome to today's episode on the podcast House of African Feminism in the series Feminist Practices and Knowledge and this is your host for today, Shiko Kimeria. Um, today I'm very honored to be joined by the wonderful uh, multi-talented artist Efwa Yofo. So let's jump in. Efwa, tell us a bit about yourself and the inspiration for your current exhibition, your recent exhibition, Udamalore. So my name is Efwa Oyofo and usually I say I'm a polymath or a multidisciplinary creative because ultimately when I look at work, I look at things in terms of how they connect together well, their interconnectivity. I find that most things are better together when they're joined with others. I had a recent exhibition called Udamalore, which means the sword or the weapon of the highborn. And essentially what I did there was deconstruct the idea of women as trophies, right? And I examined, I did a cultural study on six women through, well, I did a cultural study on Nigerian women um, from ancient to contemporary times. And essentially with that, what I was really looking at was the ways in which women have led and shone and impacted communities, whether they are as small as the people in a particular town or as big as the entire world. And I did that across different geopolitical zones, different cultural tribes, because there's so much in Nigerian history. And then I looked at it in terms of the textiles that we use. I looked at it in terms of the textiles that we use in Nigeria um, because I really wanted to also have it document Nigeria's cultural heritage. I looked at the textiles. I looked at the fashions. I looked at the time. Um, and I, what I also did with these women was do recreations of them, both in the past period when they lived, because all the women are dead, and how I see them being today. Wonderful. This sounds so interesting. So, Efwa, tell us more about this women, these six different women. So I'm going to go chronologically with this now. The first woman I chose was Morimiya Jasuru, who was around the 12th century. The second woman was Queen Amina or Sarunia Amina of Zazao, who was, I believe, 16th century. The third woman was Queen Idia, who was the very first Iyoba, which is Iyaoba, uh, queen mother of Benin Kingdom. The fourth woman is Ahebi Ubabe, who was the very first king, Ize, in Nigerian history, and she lived in pre-colonial times. Oh, sorry, colonial times. She lived in colonial times. The fifth woman was Chief Margaret April, who was a politician, wife, mother, an all-round badass. And the last woman is Buchi Emecheta, who was this lion of a figure. She was, she's one of the best recognized and acknowledged black writers um, in British and worldwide history. Um, and one of her most famous books is called The Joys of Motherhood. So those were the six women I chose. Now about the women in general. So Morimi is a folk figure, as she's known, who lived again in the 12th century. And Morimi, there are different accounts to whether she was already married before or she got married after. But essentially, she was, her hometown was being besieged by a neighboring tribe. 
and they were getting slaughtered. Um, and essentially why I, I pictured her or I featured her in this exhibition was because there are certain sacrifices she had to give up. And for me, it was really interesting about who frames the messaging. Because all you hear about how, all you, what you mainly hear about Morimi outside is, oh, wow, she was this amazing folk figure who sacrificed her son. I mean, I will leave, I don't want to, essentially, right, with every woman that I picked, I looked at parts of their life that I wanted to bring out either because I felt they hadn't really been featured before or they were under-discussed in the story. For example, a woman sacrifices her son. Some say her only son, some say her only child. To, and she didn't know that that was the price she'd have to pay for saving her hometown. For me, what I didn't like about that narrative was most of the time, they left out the way she might have felt when they talk about Morimiya Jasuru as this wonderful savior of Idei town. But they don't talk about Morimiya Jasuru, the bereaved mother. And for me, that's really just about also how you control your narrative. Because I think that a lot of the time, especially when it comes to women, right, as they say, after the lion, what's next? Because you know, there's that proverb that says, until the lion learns to talk, the hunter is the one who owns the story. So for me, I'm like, okay, so after the lion has learned to speak, what next? With Amina, I think, you see, Hausa culture, Northern culture in general, is usually framed as being dually repressed, repressive, and overly sensualized at the same time. For me, with Queen Amina, who is this legend that's almost made genderless, I wanted to focus on seeing the humanity in her, seeing, letting her be a fully sexual being. There's a rumor, for example, that she had several lovers and she... Um, <laughs> Mm. at different ports. I know, right? I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's also a rumor that none of those lovers met the morning. <gasps> Some say because they've seen her naked, but I find that to be fantastically reductive. But that's my personal view. But either way, with Queen Amina, I wanted to focus on her as a marauder and as a champion, but also one who has an orgasm every once in a while. Mm. Because I find that a lot of the time, She's almost sexless in the portrayals that were given of her. Um, and for me, because again, it was a study of female agency across the ages, right? So I really wanted to make sure that we're looking at what women's agency looks like. So now we move on to Queen Idea. Quite frankly, a personal favorite of mine. But I think all these women are, when you're really sitting in their lives every day, they become really close to you, even though they've been gone for a long time. And... So Idia's story was really interesting because Queen Idia was the second wife of the Oba at the time. And typically in that culture, when you are the second wife, you're just another wife. But you see, because then especially, they really believed in primogeniture. So of course, it's the first son. Who matters. That's exactly. Every other son is just, every other child is just 
extras. Uh-huh. Mm. So, um, so with with her, she got pregnant around the same time as the senior wife, mm. and the story goes or the legend goes that they both gave boy, birth to their sons on the same day. Ooh. I know, right? Scandal. <laughs> I know. It's even also because, like, what do you do then? But anyway, whether by hook or by crook or luck, Queen Idia's son was born first. Mm-hmm. He was the boy who cried first because that's how they determine is when you mm-hmm. cry. So, of course, there are all these rumors that she made him cry. But I'm like, well, she sure went ahead and secured that succession. Yeah. So, hey. Um, so, his younger brother very much grew up in the shadow of this golden boy because he was born first. There are also rumors that there was even an, an other brother yeah. who was older than both of them. But they needed you to not have any kind of disability. Oh. And this brother, unfortunately, was crippled. Um, so there are all these like stories and legends, but why I picked her is because aside from her ability to help frame the succession for her son, because again, her story then not become, does not become about her. It becomes about her child, um, who's a boy, but in her own right, she was a war general. She fought and she fought with all the tools available to her. Even in helping him to seek her succession. Another thing that was really poignant about her story is, you see, even for a long time, when an Oba passes on, his wives are buried with him. Because the idea is that he will need company in the afterlife. Mm. It's making me think of the Netflix film, The King's Horseman. The one exactly. where his horsemen are also exactly. buried with him. So Death and the King's Horseman. Okay. So that's where, that's the same, the one by Wally Schoenka, right? Yes. The play, exactly. So they're like, it's the same, you know, it's part of his entourage, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess she didn't fancy being buried alive. So, <laughs> you know, but the, but the thing was, and I mean, we'll never really know, but fundamentally, she was just like, I don't know about this, but while I'm here, yeah. while I breathe, mm. my son will be the one because so we, the whole story happened that basically the senior wife sent her son to Portugal yes I guess to learn diplomacy and Idia made her son stay back mm. right because by then we're already trading Benin was trading with the Portuguese and Idia made her son stay back so what happened was by the time Aruan, which is um, um, Esige is the Oba he was a new Oba. By the time he came back, Aralan, mm-hmm. the younger brother, nobody really knew who he was. He was like a stranger to them. Yes. Meanwhile, this one has been known as, you know, he's grown up in court. Everybody knows him. Long story short, the way that she fought for him shows a story to me of a mother's love for her child. The capacity that mothers have to love their children, to fight for their children. And... I guess he felt the same way because he basically hid her in a shrine um, so that she, because, you know, new Oba means that everybody must go. Mm. But he hid her in a shrine until he was able to campaign for her to be kept alive. And he conferred upon her the title of Iye Oba, which means mother of the Oba. So she's the very first queen mother. He built her a palace. The sad thing was he never saw her again. Oh no, what yeah, happened? Yeah, he was never allowed to see her again. 
But she lived. She lived. So they had they would talk to like the daughter in law or whatever, but he could never lay eyes on her again. Mm. But um I think for me I love their story because it's just a mother and a child. And he's the best kind of mama's boy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because he did all of this. Because he did all of this for his mother and she did so much for him. So I find her probably one of the fiercest of all the women there. Because even in my head, when I see her, she's this older woman who is literally fighting, going over military strategy, talking, you know, trying to like lead concession and talk. She was such a force. And she used all the cunning that she had to get this child where she needed to get him. So after her is Ahebi Ubabe, who is quite frankly one of the most controversial figures. Mm -hmm. Because she was initially a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I looked at her story, I was really interested in how did you get here? What must I have taken from you? Yes. Right? She was, okay, so there's this thing called the Berima in Igbo, a uh, custom in Igbo um, culture. And basically, Berima is you, your child rather, essentially forms some sort of penance for something that the parent has done. Mm -hmm. And hers in particular was called then Igo Maogo. And which means in law to a deity. That's what's so basically her father was a farmer and the farm was not doing well. Everything was dying. So they visited a divine hour, Dibia. So basically, right, the whole thing for me with Ahebi was number one, she had to go through so much, right? Her, I mean, there was a whole, basically, right, Igor Maogo. When you're like 13 or 14, you're married to a deity and she was married off, she was supposed to be married off to a female deity. You can't marry, you can't have kids, you're not supposed to be able to do anything. It's like a massive punishment. We have something similar now called Osu. Osu is another kind of Ibirima, which is just a cultural punishment, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you, like, even your generations are cursed. So people usually who are Osu, they leave Nigeria because they... They can't, you know, no one will really take them seriously or they have to marry outside their tribe, if that, or outside their actual, um, like, ethnicity in order to find love because they've basically been, they're outcasts, literally. So she was like, or no, I'm just going to run away. So she ran away to nearby Igala and became a prostitute or a courtesan. Mm. And she must have been, I don't know, her game must have been really good because Long story short, she was able through, I guess, understanding the way luck and chance work. And she was able to um, get into doors, right? Her coochie literally opened doors wow. for her. And, <laughs> and she met with these really influential people. And basically, they saw her. They saw the fact that she spoke many languages. She also was friends with the Atao, the king of Igala land. And... She basically around the time that um, she moved back to um no sorry let me let me take that again she also met some British official and this was right around colonial times so they needed somebody who could speak English in Enugueziki and the previous the previous um Izzy of Enugueziki was kind of old they said, and he was interested in learning English. So they were like, ah, let's just install a new person. 
who sees things the way we see them. So that's how they installed her as tribal leader, warren chief, and the very first female, Izzy. I mean, homegirl was wilding. Like, she <laughs> she was having a blast. And she made sure. And for me, anyway, her story, I think what I like the most about her story, she understood and used the tools that women are forced to when they want to make sure that they keep what is theirs. So, for example... One of the things she did that was so interesting was she, um, what's it called? Yeah, one of the things she did that was so interesting was she basically used a lot of like pre-colonial tribal symbolism mm-hmm. to build the mystique around her so that people wouldn't come for her, being that she was a woman. She made what I will call small ish, um, slight errors but everyone does. So maybe tactical errors here and there. However, her literal gender was part of why it was magnified. So for example, and again, they were pretty big, right? So one, anyway, I'll let you listen to that and read about that. But one of the things, I think why I picked her, right? Um, oh, sorry. No, let me just say what the thing was. So one of the things was she okayed the census being done. Mm-hmm. And Igbo culture, especially around that time and where she was. They don't count? They don't count people for mm-hmm. We have the same in Kenya. You don't count uh-huh. your children traditionally. Mm-hmm. You say they're around 9 to 13. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't give an exact figure. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So it's, So basically this census became a huge deal. Yeah. And it sparked the Southern Igbo Women's War mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, so, I mean, and then she also attended a masquerade. Mm-hmm. And that masquerade was really interesting because only men were allowed to attend that masquerade. Mm-hmm. So it was a really big deal. And then the tribal leaders were like, okay, we've had enough of this crap. This woman leading. And notice how I put the quotes around woman leading. Yeah. So they took her to court and mm-hmm. sued. And now the British who installed her had been had had her back most of the time, but this time they were like, actually, no, we're, we're not supporting you on this. Yeah. And so she was still king, but she lost a lot of power. But at the end of the day, two years before she died, she threw herself a funeral because she was like, I don't trust you. <laughs> so she threw herself a massive funeral, gave herself all the things she wanted to see. I love this. I you wish know? I could have met her. Yeah, she's. I was like, this chick is interesting. Yeah, she said I won't be there. You know, I won't be physically there d- during my own mm-hmm. funeral. At least, let me have one where I can style. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if I tell you, hey. find information on this woman. Uh. That's how much women leading was such a threat. Oh, There's yes. no information on her anywhere. Gosh. One person wrote a book, and like the the is so little. There are no photos. Wow. And I'm like, wow, like she didn't die in the 12th century. Yeah. She, she died, I think in 1945 or something. Or no, 1918, one of those two. So that's her. Next is someone who was born in, I believe, I forget what year. I want to say 1904. Uh huh. Um, which is Chief Margaret April. Mm. And she was Joys really in motherhood. That's the, no, no, no. That's, that's, that's the, the next Chita. one. Oh, sorry. So this is Chief Margaret Ipu, and mm. she was from Kadaba. Mm-hmm. And her story is really interesting because her father was actually an Igbo man mm-hmm. who mig- emigrated to Kadaba, met a Kadaba woman there. Mm-hmm. From and there's like a she was from one of the royal houses, and he loved her so much that he changed his name 
for this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and Margaret was, I think, I forget what number in her family she was, but like, so her her maiden name was Epeong, mm-hmm. but his birth name was um, Osadula. Anyway, all this to say, what I really like about Margaret's story was she married young. Mm-hmm. She married a man who loved her, and like it was a love match, yeah. right? She was twenty four, which I guess for the, that time was, was old. Late. Yeah, but she didn't complete school for a long time. And she completed school in England. Mm-hmm. But she was one of those people, I would say, used her street smarts mm. to really, like, she was raw intelligence, right? So, for example, you know, she's married, she's got however many kids, and she's living in Abia State. Mm-hmm. And she'd been to Dublin with her husband because he was a doctor and because he was a civil servant. He couldn't talk about the injustices. So, for example, imagine in Nigeria, mm-hmm. you have hospitals mm-hmm. where black people can't enter. And anyway, <laughs> I guess she, she, he, so she became the way he was able to speak out because they would he obviously, you know, pillow yeah. talk now. Um, and also husband and wife talk. So she went and she was like, no, this can't work. But so one thing I like about her is that they okay, imagine they live in Abba, um, and they she's like, Oh women, let's like congregate. And the husbands are like, No, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't want you congregating before you start hatching plans. Mm. She was like, Cool. <laughs> so she went and this babe bought all the salt in the markets. Uh-huh. And if you know one thing about Calabar, even about Nigerian men, Igbo men, because she was in Abia State. Like food. <laughs> <laughs> what did she do with the salt? Did she, she put it in food? She was like, "Oh dear, if you want salt, you have to join my association." Hey, okay. <laughs> and she got Nigeria as where it hurts mm-hmm. the food. Got them by the bow <laughs> and the tongue. So that's how these women were able to join the association. Yeah. And so I really like her because. You know, she fought, I mean, you know, from even people who knew her, yeah. right? And they're still alive today. They're like, man, that woman could fight. And she was very no-nonsense. Beautiful woman. I love very that she tall. took all the salt. That's she a very unique all the salt. type of fight. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes, it's, and that's the thing for me, because Udamalara, essentially, you're looking at this idea, right? Because when I saw it, it said, these are weapons that have been fashioned for nothing other than decoration. Mm. They have a little to no value other than to indicate the wealth of the owner. Mm. And I was like, but that's how we they describe women these days. <laughs> yes. right? What's the difference? Somebody said, no matter how many cars, houses, and bibs a man has. And I said, wow. So in the line of like property, we're the third. <laughs> After I, the houses and the cars. <laughs> So like that's disgusting. I remember who said, and I won't say who, because I don't need no trouble. But I think it was that moment of the guy talking will tell you that he's a progressive mm. or he's a feminist, and mm. I'm like, but yet when you talk about women, mm. it's so disrespectful. You're going to see stars, yeah. you know. Well, we will watch the stars and hang them for them. <laughs> <laughs> So for me, when I saw the weapons, mm. right, because you see them, they're like just decorated. They almost look like masquerades. Yeah. Very lushly beaded, very high value. Yes. I said, 
this is the problem. This is, so I said, but part of the problem I find is there's not enough space given for the complexities in womanhood and the ways that we can all develop differently. You know, understand what I'm saying? So for me, I was like, okay, let's build this idea or this messaging into this cultural study. Now, the last woman. Mm. Oh, no, let me touch on Margaret briefly. Margaret's story was a bit sad towards the end. Mm -hmm. She was jailed. She was in prison during the Biafran war for three years. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were many things they did not do for her. And one of them was feed her properly. But I mean, that woman was a politician. She was the first one of the first members of parliament for Nigeria. Like she did so much for the community. She's the only woman, I believe, in Africa who has a, an airport named after her. Oh. There are a few. Okay, there's Cesare Evora. There's maybe like three maximum. Mm. Yeah. So she has an airport named after her. Or maybe it was West Africa or something. Mm. But there are very few either very, way women who have. I airport. think even globally it's ten. Imagine. So Africa might be two. It's so sad. Very. It's so sad. But you know, there's so much that she did. And I think, for me, when I think of her, I think of, again, that idea of women having to use what is available to them mm. um, to make something happen. And that's what she did. Then we have Buchi Emecheta. Mm. You know, Buchi's story is really interesting because Homegirl was born in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And her father did not believe in education for girls. Because we are where? For the other room. Mm. The bedroom? The mm. kitchen? Sorry. How does it go? The, my, where? my wife belongs in the bedroom. Oh, no. Kitchen, that was the other room. The other room. The kitchen, the parlor, and the other room. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not the study. Mm. Okay. So, <laughs> she managed to convince her parents that she should go to school. So, by age nine... She got admission into, or was it nine? No, no, no. Anyway, she got admission into like a missionary school in Lagos, but she was born in her hometown, Ibuzo. And her father died when she was nine. Her mother um, betrothed her to a, a, a boy when she was 11. Mm-hmm. So she finished school, her mother died, she got married, and she had a baby. At in one year. No, 16. 16, okay. So, that marriage, man. There are some marriages that are just material for books. Yeah. And apparently, from what I can understand, I can never take that out. My brain is like, ah, for someone who you. So, what I will say is this. I won't comment too much on her marriage, but I will say that Buchi and Mecheta wrote a lot of thinly veiled um, stories about her life. Mm-hmm. And the work that she produced from this marriage. So, for example, she gets married, has her first kid, moves almost, you know, shortly after to England with her husband. And she said they sold everything they had. So, they're now living in England. It's a very unhappy marriage. He's abusive, emotionally, physically, all the ways. But when she was 22 years old, she spent years, and as an author, I think you will appreciate, Mm -hmm. or you can imagine what this was like, she spent years working on her book, finished her manuscript, mm-hmm. and then my guy decides that what he needs to do, because he felt threatened, mm-hmm. was burn her manuscript. Oh my goodness. Listen, when I read it, I was like, ah, oh, no, that guy would have died twice. Okay, that one she, is evil. It was horrible. And she said, because they asked her, and she was, 
she was pregnant with her fifth kid for this man in oh like five years. Goodness. She was 22. And she's written a manuscript in the midst of all that. And was still cooking, cleaning. Because basically, and he actually spawned it because apparently he used to make fun of her. Mm-hmm. That, oh, you're such a little lady in England, Abby, that all you do is wash nappies and take care of children. Like, that is easy. Yeah. So she wrote this manuscript to show him that I'm not just wasting time. Yeah. No problem. He burnt it and she promptly left him. Um, And somewhere there's an image I have of her where she's pregnant out to here. Yeah. Because that's when she left him, heavily pregnant with four children. Four other children. And she wrote so many other books. And when somebody interviewed her, I was watching one of the interviews, and they were like, what was it like when that happened? She was like, it was like he killed my sixth child. It was like he killed my child. Wow. Right? And I know as a writer, that is just so heartbreaking. Because you can't, have, you can't get back that work again. It took her two, three years to rewrite the whole thing. And, you know, why I like Bucci, not just because she was like a modern woman and all that, but Bucci, in a way, to me, the community she saved was the world. She not only just took Nigerian stories, because I even don't like that terminology, even when they say Nigeria to the world, it always makes me think like we're taking an offering to some demigod. But she wrote Nigerian stories and had them stand as they were. And for me, it takes a certain kind of mindset to be able to do that. So for me, her weapon was her pen yeah. and her mind and the incredible work. If you read The Joys of Motherhood, especially you as a mother, mm-hmm. you it's it's so fraught with... I was crying the entire time. Yeah. And I read it in a matter of hours. For me, right, Bucci, not just... When I say she was old, she she led the community and brought, you know, she, she made Nigeria stand for what it was. I think it's like her love letter to the world that has not been kind to her. And there are too many women who the world is not kind to them. Mm. And the world never stops being unkind. So for me, it's really important to immortalize these women in ways that will bring joy to their name. And bring happiness and acknowledge them and thank them yeah. for all that they've done for us. Right? Bucci was the first, Bucci Mecheta's book was, I, was it the first book published by Allison and Busby? Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know Margaret Busby. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, for people who don't know, she's amazing. She was um, the first black British publisher. She was Ghanaian. And she's one of the women I hope to feature one day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, this this is not about Margaret, but or not this Margaret anyway. Um, but her book was one of the first books that they bought. So for me, when I look at these six women, it's about the way that they were able to impact a community to shine, even if they were stuck in the depths of mud. They still shone through. It's women fighting through the patriarchy. And I think, yep. F- F- this. thank you so much for these stories. They're so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is a wonderful point to ask you. As a as an African woman, as a feminist, why did what? Why is this particular work important to you? Why do you think it's important for us to tell the stories of this very diverse set of women who've lived in different times and have faced different challenges? Why is it important for the world as it is right now to hear these types of stories? I think number one, we need to hear them because there are so many little girls 
who have been taught to see womanhood in slices, right? As I said to somebody, we see ourselves as tactics, not as topics, right? Um, and we're always continually decimated into bite-sized pieces. Mm. So for me, it's a way of educating without educating, but just informing people and letting them know this is who we are as a collective. Um, it's also important to have it this way because I'm a multifaceted learner. So I did all of this and put it on a podcast mm. about these stories, right? I did performance pieces and I just narrated the stories. I also have it written um, because I also think that part of, you know, okay, another thing is because as Africans, many of our countries and cultures, we, t- we, we tell our stories orally. Mm. And the problem is we don't document them. So for me, this is my way of documenting and mapping African women, our histories and our culture in a way that is something that will become a compendium over time where you have literally an archive, a repository of African women's stories. It's also important because when I talk about cultural heritage, I want us to see it more as a celebration instead of just a duty. So I want to talk about the difference between Akwacha and Ashoke. I want to talk about why is this particular um, mat on the floor why is it on the wall these are all different aspects and perspectives of our lives um, and i think also as african women we're not used to seeing ourselves in positions of power that are um where the human element is very explicit you know you hear about powerful okay so ethiopia has a female president um or a president who happens to be a woman because i hate terms like woman leader um you will never say male leader mm. but she's so it's it's not something that most people can achieve but when you think okay well you know what i don't need to change the whole world or i need to change my definition of what the world is the world can be my neighborhood it can be my state it can be my town it can be the world so that's why i think it's important for women to see and hear these stories yeah Wonderful. And I know for the for the listeners here, they might not have seen the exhibition, but I would love for you to describe because one of the things that we had about the exhibition is the fact that you don't just use various uh, forms of telling these women's stories. But one of the things that I've heard about is the fabrics, so fashion and the juxtaposition of that and weaponry. So I'd love to know why why fashion and weaponry? People don't see those going hand in hand. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So for me, when I look at, okay, first of all, the way I see fashion, right, is fashion in and of itself is a type of weaponry. Oh, girl, right? yes, you come to slay. <laughs> and you have come to slay today. Amen. Thank you very much. My sister made this. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you. You see, I feel like even when you talk about like, you know, one of the expressions we use a lot here in Nigeria is shine your eye. Mm. And I feel like when we look at things as Nigerians, we oftentimes um, look at those and we're literally girding ourselves. That's why I said fashion is a type of weaponry, right? The what you're wearing. So when I was looking at the outfits, right? For example, someone like Amina. Mm. Are you kidding me? Amina is going out to lead wars. Mm. She has a mountain of people who depend on her. So we dressed her in red, <laughs> Um, I actually sat down with um, a well-known designer when I was coming up with some of the clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a few, actually. But we wanted her in red. 
because it will cover all the blood of her enemies that she's slain. Oh, okay. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, we wanted her in red because it will cover all the blood of the enemies that she's slain. Um, but I also wanted um, to make to connect the dots between weapons, weaponry, being something that is decorative, and womanhood, and fashion. So how I combined it was. I use a lot of things that commonly occur in Nigeria. So most tribes in Nigeria use corals. Corals are like the queen beads, right? Or the royal beads. So for example, I wore two and somebody said, ah, I'm Benin queen. Because literally that's why you wear them. Um, they're a sign of like wealth. Um, but every culture wears them very differently, right? So what came out of it was a mini study on Nigerian like corals and heraldry. Mm-hmm. And so for me, all of these things, because it's the same thing, right? You're playing on the same thing. So the, as someone said, it's funny, you never use this term, but I know you meant it. It's what I call soft life feminism, mm. which is what I think as if you can, as much as you can, you should imbue in your lifestyle because you have all these things that are ordinarily not weapons, mm. but we're able to fuse them because of the way we've been raised or made to live were able to use them and in turn them into weapons so yeah so for me that's how i fused the two i looked at the clothes i also looked at how they dressed then Mm -hmm. and how i see them now Mm -hmm. but i made sure that as much as i could for the clothing they were things that would allow them to fight Mm -hmm. or advocate in the way that they typically would yes yeah you know, it's so beautiful because as you're talking about Queen Amina of Zauzau and all the stereotypes they had, mm-hmm. it makes me reflect on when I was growing up in Kenya, the stories we used to hear of women in power. They were oh. always terrible. So one I can mm-hmm. give, and I think it's maybe the patriarchy's way of making sure we believe women can't be leaders or when they're leaders, they're ruthless for no good reason. Mm-hmm. So my, my tribe, I'm Kikuyu, and the story we used to be told was, you know, back in the day, the Kikuyu, you were, you were matrilineal and... We had, uh, she was called Wagoiwa Makeri. Wagoiwa oh, Makeri was, name. yeah, they said she was the queen at that time, or she was the chief, uh, she was the chief at that time, and she led the Kikuyus. But the stories are, uh, she was terrible. Everywhere she mm. went, she had to be carried on, on the backs of four men. She was <laughs> so mean and everything. And then what happened was the men, the, and, and the women really mistreated the men when, when Wagoiwa Makeri was ruling. And so what the men planned was they got all the women pregnant at the same time. Wow. And that's how they took power from the women. And now that's why it's the patriarchy that governs. And hearing this story as a child or even a girl, it gives you the mentality of women are terrible leaders. And there's yeah. a purpose why these stories are always told this mm-hmm. way. So the work you're doing, honestly, you're doing a great job because you're taking Thank these you. stories, you're owning them, and you're telling stories of women who, you know, she was a prostitute, she was married to a god, which someone would think is a good thing, but <laughs> apparently here it, it does, it's not a good thing, and she was suffered in these ways, and then mm-hmm. she took her power back. Mm-hmm. So... All this to say, I know you're taking Udamalore. For you, Udamalore is not just going to be a Nigerian project. Mm-hmm. It's something you want to do Africa-wide. So I'd love to hear what's the next phase for Udamalore. Where are you thinking? Uh, are there? Is it too early to speak about particular characters in different African countries that you want to? Um, yeah. So it's two things, right? I've got. I've done what I call. The archive of cool dead women, right? Mm-hmm. That's one as- aspect. Ooh, archive of cool dead women. <laughs> yeah, really cool dead women. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you know, they're really cool. Like, I'm like, you know, they're like, I'm like, this woman is so dope. 
um, and she's unfortunately not living. But there are some who are living who I think I'm like, yo, I want to talk to you while you're here. Um, so for me, it's a mix of things. I definitely want to um, do one in another country, which I'd love to share with you later. Okay. And then I have certain women that I'm like, I cannot wait to body these women. Mm. Because what I do with each woman is I actually embody the women. I take on the women. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when you look at all the photos, it's me in every photo. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but for some reason, yeah. and everyone's like, huh, it's you. But it doesn't look like you. Because yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. So the story is not about me. I'm wearing the clothes of these women who are no longer here. But I'm just a conduit. I'm just standing in gap for them. Um, so I have some I like to do who are still here. Um, because they've just done amazing things. Yeah. Um, but I'm still debating how to honor their stories as best as I can. But yeah, so um, I'm honestly open to whichever country will have me next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a lot from this exhibition. I really poured a lot of myself into it, and it gave me three times, four times. It gave me m- multiple times more than I could ever imagine. It's um, been, quite frankly, almost the love of my life work-wise. And, yeah, so I, I, I will say stay tuned okay. as to the next country. But um, right now, I'm also working on a book around the first one. Oh. Yeah, so telling those stories, having them together. So... But it's honestly been amazing. It's been amazing. And thank you. And I think it's also really allowed me to see that this work is way bigger than me, even in terms of the way that you tell the stories Mm -hmm. and what these women were doing. So I'm just happy to be given, I don't want to say given the permission, but to have this ability and interest in documenting these women's lives. And I'm hoping that you know, as I map it out and continue having this archive of it, other women will be inspired by it to yes. be able to say, oh, I can do this. Oh, man, they want to, I'm 13, they want to do this to me. And okay, maybe you don't have to run away and become a prostitute, but you can find a way to advocate for yourself. But she was what, like, she must have been like on that 10 when she's like, I want to go 